I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome our guests today, authors of new books, both Nicole Hemmer, author of Partisans, the conservative revolutionaries who remade American politics in the 1990s. She's also a scholar at the Obama Oral History Project. And Will Bunch, he is national columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer and author of the new book, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Divided the Nation and How to Fix It. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, Let me start with you, Nicole, and then I will ask Will the same question precisely so we are establishing a foundation here. When you think of the thesis of your book and what precisely you mean by partisans or partisanship revolutionizing who is making American politics. I don't think you just mean who remade it, but who is still remaking it. What is the underlying thesis of who, how, why, in your mind, they remade politics? So in Partisans, I talk about these figures in the 1990s in particular, who are taking advantage of two changed conditions in American politics and American society. And that is the end of the Cold War, which fundamentally changed the underlying logic of the conservative movement and a new media environment that allowed for a kind of blending of entertainment and politics, and that really favored a kind of partisanship, a kind of um, almost extremism and shock value that had found its way into politics and other places in the past, but in the 1990s really moved to the fore of American politics, particularly on the right. And so that combination of the new geopolitical conditions and the new media environment allowed, especially on the right, for a new form of extremism and punditry that created the partisans that I write about. And now to Will, the thesis of your book seemingly connected to Nicole's insofar as one of the victims of that partisanship and that vitriol has been the educators, higher education, public education. Um, You're making a point about the ivory tower and your thesis is in effect what? Well, you know, we've seen college become the real thought line in American politics. Whereas, you know, today in 2022, uh, the Democrats are seen as the party of college educated elites more and more. And Republicans are seen more and more as the party of the working classes. Uh, especially the white working class. Um, you know, so, so my book explores how that happens. And it's, it's interesting, there is an interesting overlap because the 1990s, I think, was a time where it really started to come into focus because um, uh, higher education, college in America had, had, had gone from being almost a public good during the, um, the heyday of college, which was the 40s, 50s, and 60s, where you saw this dramatic expansion. And by the 1990s, we saw this privatization of college and opportunities became more, more limited. 
but especially for people in the working class is the, is the uh, either the cost of college or the uh, increasingly low rates of admission, you know, left college out of reach for people. And I, I think what, what this triggered is resentment, you know, people, people who were shut out of college, uh, you know, struggled on the job market, but also they felt there was a lack of respect, you know, that if this country was going to be defined as a meritocracy, and if these people didn't have the primary badge of merit, which was a college diploma, then people seem to be looking down on them for not for not having that badge. And and uh, you know, uh, partisans who came along in the 1990s were very good at stirring up those resentments. Yeah, to Will's point, and of course your point in partisans, Nicole, the the predecessors of of Donald Trump um, and the turning points movement, right? There, there is a strong foundation that was building on, I know, I think Pat Buchanan's on the cover of your book. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, the, the idea of demonizing education, um, was that something that Newt Gingrich and Pat Buchanan and others, you know, got in a smoke-filled room and said, you know, this is how we're going to do this. Um, because that does seem to be the foundation of some elements of Trumpism and conservatism as we, as we see it in its more extreme forms today. Well, while there were certainly some behind the scenes coordination and shenanigans that were going on during the 1990s, in this case, that kind of grievance politics especially around education that would become so central to politics in the American right. Um, first of all, it had been there since the 1960s and 1970s. I mean, this was something that fueled organizations like Young Americans for Freedom. There was, in fact, a, um, a, a book called The Left-Leaning Tower. There was a, a column in National Review that was all about universities. So some of that was already baked into the conservative movement. But this idea of the Democratic Party being led by white, college-educated, out-of-touch elites, that really moves to the fore in the 1990s. Um, and it's not a coordinated thing, um, but it is a place where the grievances kind of kind of zero in, that colleges are the place where your children are taken and they're brainwashed, that you're looked down upon, especially as the Republican Party is beginning to try to woo the white working class even more. I mean, it's starting in the Nixon era with the hard hat riots, but by the 1990s, it has become a core component as grievance politics moves to the moves to the fore. Um, it's a little different than in the 1980s when somebody like Reagan, even though he tapped into some of that, was so focused on trying to sound optimistic and upbeat about America and America's future. Folks like Pat Buchanan and even Newt Gingrich don't necessarily feel that way. Will, I thought I saw you thinking something. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to add, I, I mean, I, I agree with everything Nicole said, and, and I agree with her that it wasn't so much an organized thing, but, but one of the points that she made about the new forms of media that came along in the 1990s, um, you know, one person who emerges in my book, I think is an important figure, is Rush Limbaugh, because mm -hmm. he, he was an expert at exploiting the culture wars. Because when you go back and, and look at those early Rush Limbaugh shows when he was really catching fire in the early 1990s, um, he, he often, he often uh, zeroed in on things that were happening on college campuses, you know, which is uh, just the idea that 
people who go to colleges are obsessed with taking down the hierarchies that conserve that mean so much to conservatives in this country, and particularly you know the patriarchy and particularly the racial hierarchy hierarchies that have existed in years. You know, um, you know, uh, college education was increasingly seen as, as a threat to those hierarchies, and and I think you know talk radio and Fox News became venues for channeling that outrage. It's so interesting that you mentioned Rush Limbaugh because people like Pat Buchanan and Dinesh D'Souza, who would become big figures in the 1990s, they were college educated. Um, somebody like D'Souza really cut his teeth at a college newspaper. But especially in radio, people like Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity, they didn't have college educations and they wore that as a badge of pride when they were doing their show, right? That we can be yeah. successful in America and we can speak to people without a college education because we ourselves um, washed out of college. We tried college, it didn't work for us. Um, and there was a better path for us here in America. Let me ask you this, Will. Yeah. How much of, of what you're focused on is a result of um, re Republican propaganda um, or specifically extremist propaganda of the kind that you and Nicole are talking about, how much of it is that and how much of it is a victim of an, an inequitable, undemocratic system when we're talking about higher education? Um, because when I read you and think of your thesis, I think a lot about Thomas Frank, another one of our, our favorite guests here on The mm -hmm. Open Mind. And uh, I say that in the most favorable sense of you identifying the complicity of liberals or liberalism in perpetuating inequities in you know, systems that they tout as democratic when maybe they're not, um, in, you know, and in, in not engendering the values that they say they are. But with, specifically with college, how much of it is, is, um, is what those allegations of, of Republicans or the conservatives on talk radio, how much of that is, is sort of what is causing the ivory tower to break and how much of it is, is actually liberals own fault? That's a great question. I, mean, I think you're looking at, at two things that just feed upon each other in kind of a constant cycle, you know? Uh, no, there really are massive problems uh, uh, with the cost of college in America, uh, you know, with access, with who, who have opportunities to get a higher education in America and who, who doesn't get those opportunities. And, um, uh, it's complicated. Now, I, I do feel that to some degree, Republicans, conservatives started the backlash against higher education, uh, you know, going all the way back to Ronald Reagan, uh, who was the first person to really raise the idea that, that maybe low tuition for, for young people wasn't a good idea, that uh, he famously said that taxpayers shouldn't be uh, uh, underwriting the intellectual curiosity of young people. And um, you know, this, this philosophy led to real world budget cuts, you know, in state houses for, for, for public universities. And, and, and I think that's a key factor that started this cycle of, of higher tuition and college getting out of reach. But at the same time, I think, you know, when, uh, you know, when rank and file people on the right, you know, when people who live in the Rust Belt or these rural areas, you know, when, when they complain about elitism and, and they complain about cosmopolitan college types looking down on them, that they're, they're not wrong, you know, I mean, um, uh, you know, it, I mean, uh, uh, there really is, there really is a sense that they get that, um, 
they're seen as something less because the, because they don't have a diploma. The, the people that they have interactions with on a daily basis, like government bureaucrats or journalists from the hometown newspaper, that these or, or school teachers, you know, right. they feel that these people have different values from them, and and it's it's a legitimate it's a legitimate cultural feeling. It's not something that's just whipped up out of thin air by propagandists. Nicole, how much of this do you see now as the intent of the partisans of the 90s, um, not just to malign college or universities? I mean, even if you started from a more objective footing and saying, look, there are certain professions in the American system that don't require higher education, they might require technical schools, they may not, but that's not in and of itself a controversial or malignant sentiment. But what has happened is the politicization of higher ed has now become the politicization of education in general, especially high school. Um, and not, and that's ground zero now for these debates about school board leaders. If you go into the history that you did, knowing where we are now, that Turning Points and other conservative organizations are, are targeting public education, um, as much as, if not more than higher education, not just high school, grade school, elementary school, um, does that seem like the sort of their initial intent and design of the movement that you write about in Partisans? Well, certainly in part, because this attack on institutions and particularly this attack on publicly funded institutions has been a core part of conservatism since it emerged in its contemporary form in the 1940s and 1950s, especially when you think about schools as sites of desegregation, um, as places where by the 1960s, um, mandatory prayer was no longer allowed as sites of sex education, bilingual education. The idea that these um, elementary and high schools were also places where liberal ideas were being indoctrinated, but were also kind of the, um, the building blocks of a publicly funded society that made them a real threat to the conservative project more broadly. Now you weave into that these culture wars that Will has, has mentioned around issues of political correctness, but also the history wars in the 1990s, these wars over whether we should be teaching um, a critical history of the United States or whether we should have a history of the United States that glorifies the past. I mean, these are very contemporary arguments that we're having, but they were there in the 90s as well. And they were fueling a lot of the politics of the day. And so I think that it's it's this mix of both ideological, this mix of ideological and cultural and economic arguments all flowing together. And the schools are such a powerful space for those arguments, especially elementary and high school, because not only do you have all of those issues, but now we're talking about people's children. And that adds a layer of emotion and passion, and in some cases, fear, that makes it such a potent political issue. Yeah, I don't know if you recall, Will, uh, during um, the Supreme Court nomination hearing um, for Justice Jackson, uh, but Ted Cruz, I think most notably, and you probably wrote a column on this that I might remember, <laughs> but most notably was attacking a particular book that was assigned at a private school that uh, the justice uh, sits on the board of 
Um, but when you thought of it, you know, the, the concept was um, um, the, the justice had to decline, you know, abstain from even basically identifying that that's not the way she would have taught, you know, colorblindness or, you know, the history of segregation or racism, but that, that she had to refrain from even saying that basic point mm -hmm. that we ought to, we need to teach the history of racism and, you know, being in, in how to be ethical, uh, you know, and, and so the reason, the reason I'm mentioning this is in, sort of in the context of school board decisions um, that are being made about whether to teach the history of racism in this country anymore. And, uh, and I'm, I'm wondering how that fits in to the degradation of education in general, not, yeah, not specifically the ivory tower. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And it, it's something that's funny is that as a columnist, I've been focused on it a lot this, this year. It's it's a little bit outside of the scope of my book, partly because we're talking about something that's really accelerated, I think, in the last you know six to nine months after I finished writing the book, frankly. But uh, you know, I, I think I think initially the, the conservative concern about education was heavily focused on college. Uh, again, you know, starting in the '60s because that's where you saw the action. You know, that's where you saw the big protest against. The Vietnam War and against racial segregation and, and, and other issues, and I think I think we hit a big pivot point with the George Floyd protests in 2020, because I think I think conservatives were horrified by those protests, but by the size and the scope of them, were in a number of mid-sized and even small towns in in the Rust Belt, in, in, in states that voted for Donald Trump and. 2016 or even in 2020, you had hundreds of people turn out for Black, Life, uh, Black Lives Matter marches in 2020. And I think conservatives noticed that a lot, of, a lot of high school kids took part in this, a lot of high school teachers took part in this, uh, uh, in addition to college kids. And um, uh, in, in fact, and I, and I do quote this in the book, um, there was a study of the George Floyd some of the bigger George Floyd protests in, in DC and New York that spring found that 82% of the people who took part in these marches were college graduates, which is just my mind. I mean, it's more than double the rate of the American population overall. So I think that's just, just, to, just to bring the point full circle, I think, yeah. I think conservatives right now are terrified that education, that schooling is making people uh, you know, turn against uh, the system of white privilege. It's making them turn against the patriarchy and, and other gender norms that are that are so important to the conservative movement. And and, it, and what's changed is I think it used to be this used to be traced to what was happening in college. And I think now conservatives are panicked that this is happening as early as grade school. That, that by talking about race or by talking about LGBTQ issues in, in grade school, that kids are growing up to reject conservatism, and and and, and thus it's going to end their movement. And I, I think. I think that's why you're seeing such a focus on education right now. Let me just ask you this both as, as a kind of closing transitional question here. You say in your last part of the book, Will, about prescriptions, how, how to fix the problem. And I want to hear how you think we fix the problem right now, because it, it has to be more than tolerance for 
folks who don't want to be college educated that that's that's not a that's a, not a real prescription although you know having interviewed recently a number of of republican governors for a new thing that i'm working on i that's that's definitely part of what they embody this feeling like i'm representing constituencies who who you know um want to feel affirmed by their lack of a college education not denigrated for it well you know i i think i think we need to get back to the somehow to the spirit of the 40s and 50s and 60s of you know where where higher education is seen as more of a, of a public good and not a privatized responsibility and um uh because because college was was really the american dream back then you know the people you know the public public trust uh, and public faith in our university system was off the charts back then. And it's it's really plummeted in the last few years. And um, uh, I think I think making college more affordable again and uh, giving people more opportunities and it doesn't, you know, getting getting into those complaints from the governors that you, that you interviewed, it doesn't have to just be traditional college. Uh, you know, we need we need free trade schools in this country. You know, we need more apprenticeships and internships and opportunities like that. And one thing I'll mention really quickly is, is uh, I talk in the book about uh, encouraging a universal gap year where millions of young people at age 18 uh, would, would do a year of national service. And that would bring that would bring people from Trump country and people from these cosmopolitan cities, bring, bring them together to work on, you know, preventing wildfires and, and working in schools and disadvantaged communities. It, there, there's a lot we can do if we acknowledge that this is a core problem and if we take it seriously. And Nicole, I want to give you an opportunity to, to sort of reflect on the book, your book, in, in this prescriptive, constructive climate of what to do about the extremism. We know it's here. We know it's metastasized with Infowars and Alex Jones and all these, the rest of it. Uh, but, but to Will's point, like, it's, it has been for some time taboo to say, let's Let's revert to this time when folks associate that with less, um, you know, equality or at least racial equality. When in fact, if you look at the economics, it was in the Kennedy and Eisenhower years that the tax code was was you know astronomically fairer. There, there are certain things that were just fairer. They might not have been fairer for all people, um, but but that I I wonder if if you have any sense of that of that history because then you know you start to date yourself and that whole period gets associated with vietnam instead of good you know higher education good public education that that um you know is a stark contrast to the extremism that that was metastasizing in the in the 90s and has still been metastasizing yeah, I mean, I think that there are limits to both what economics and education can do to thwart extremism. Extremism is almost certainly always going to be part of the American political system. And right now it's incentivized in a lot of ways. But I do think in thinking about the fairness of the 40s and 50s and 60s, we know enough now, right, that we can marry the economic fairness with a fairness along racial and gender lines as well. And if you can build a robust system, and this includes great unions, unions that are focused not only on fair wages, but on equitable hiring that create those kinds of opportunities so that 
if you have a college education, you have the opportunity to get a good, well-paying job. If you don't have a college education, you have those same opportunities and that those opportunities exist for everyone, that they're not just limited to one type of person, that they're not just limited to college grads and they're not just limited to white people or to men. There really are ways to marry different types of fairness in a system. Now, getting political agreement on doing all of that is an extremely difficult thing to do. It will be a political fight on a number of fronts, but that I think is a great place to start investing some energy. And Nicole, will you, we, all three of us are political junkies. We think we're relatively well-educated in politics. Uh, you both mm-hmm. have been doing a little longer than me, possibly, uh, Will. Um, but, uh, but what is one thing from your book uh, that you think people who follow politics closely, it would confound them or, you know, it's, it's the most salient thing if, if it's just an individual fact uh, that, you know, you want people to take away from your book or you want them to continue reflecting on or working to correct. And we're nearly out of time, but if you each have 30 seconds or so on this, and starting with you, Nicole. So I would say that people often think of the 90s as a decade of polarization. And I think it would be more accurate to say it's an era of radicalization and to understand how that radicalization emerges from a period of time where it looked like anything was actually possible. We didn't have to become more partisan. It's the the era of Ross Perot and the highest third party vote in nearly a century. So embracing the messiness of the 90s and then making sense of how politics of today emerged from it. Will? Yeah, you know, one fact from my book, there was a, um, a UCLA did a, a, a massive survey every year of college freshmen. And in 1969, 82% of college freshmen said that the reason of going to college was to, be, to develop a meaningful philosophy of life. And that number plummeted in half by the mid 80s. And by the mid 80s, the number one answer was um, to get myself in a position to be well off financially. And, um, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, this question of what is college for, uh, you know, um, uh, we need to make college more affordable and more accessible, but we also need to integrate it with how do we produce better people, people, people who will have an appreciation for climate science instead of buying into climate denial, people, people who won't be susceptible to conspiracy theories like, like QAnon or, or, or like, the big lie that led up to January 6th. And, um, uh, you know, and, and, and we can give people those education and it, and it doesn't even have to be in a college classroom, but we really need to be thinking about how to, how to produce a better informed, better educated populace. Yeah, well, both important insights. Will, Nicole, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate it. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, 
Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.